Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, it is an exciting time to be a part of Connection Church. We've got some really, really cool stuff going on. I mean, God has just been doing a tremendous work. Uh, this year already, we've seen uh, tw 20, tw over 20 salvations, which is really more than we saw all of last year. So God has just been doing a tremendous work. Uh, not only that, but we got, obviously, our building is, is, is in the process. If you ride by there, you see they're already starting the site work on that, which is super uh, exciting as well. Um, also, we have churches being planted right now, one in Richmond Hill, as you heard, and the other in Wilkinson County, which is incredible, and as well as missionaries being sent out. And so, man, God is just tremendously doing uh, some awesome things uh, that really we can't do. Only he could do something like that. And so we're super excited uh, about that. So thank you for your generosity. One of the things about Immeasurably More that just blows me away every time I think about it is uh, that you guys, me, you, our family, and y'all's families are willing to give not just what you're able, not just tithes and offerings on Sundays, but you're saying, I want to sacrifice more, and I want to give a little bit more to take the gospel further. And so that just uh, absolutely blesses me, and I want you to know I'm encouraged and excited and expectant to what God uh, has for us over the next few years uh, as we move there. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 5. Uh, John chapter 5 is where we'll be. Uh, this morning. If you're new, uh, we are actually walking through this entire gospel, and so the book of John is just an incredible biography of the life of Christ. And so obviously the letter John was written uh, 20, 25 years after all of the other gospels, and so John was writing it uh, towards the end of his life, and he was writing it uh, looking back at the time that he had spent with uh, Jesus during his ministry, and uh, he was writing specifically for one reason. We figured that out, so that people uh, would believe. He wanted folks to believe, and during uh, after the, Jesus had resurrected, obviously people were questioning uh, Christ. Was he really a man? Did he really resurrect from the dead? Was he truly God? And so John has been very clear throughout this entire book uh, that Jesus was God and that we should believe, and there are major implications for whether we believe or we don't believe. And so today we're going to get to see a very interesting uh, dialogue uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so uh, I want you to pick up in verse 16 with me and uh, let's read a little bit and I'll explain a little bit as we go. So verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work, at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they, being the Pharisees, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. So remember the context. Last week we talked about Jesus healing a couple people, and uh, in the beginning of John chapter 5, he had healed uh, a paralytic who had been paralyzed for 38 years and was waiting by the pool of Bethesda trying to get in but couldn't get in and Jesus walks up to him and uh, changes his life forever. Obviously says, hey, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, and then later he comes back to him at the temple and talks to him a little bit about the gospel and becoming holy and actually what belief is all about. And so we looked at that. Well, meanwhile, the religious people, uh, the Pharisees were not okay with what was happening, right? And so uh, it's interesting, instead of celebrating uh, the miracle of this man now walking, uh, the miracle of God changing this man's life, the religious folks are upset because it was done on the Sabbath, 
and also that Jesus was calling uh, himself the Son of God, right? And so uh, instead of being excited for this man, they were more uh, perplexed and, and really angry at Jesus for what he was doing. And so Jesus is about to respond to them uh, as you can imagine. And so he's going to use some statements, and I want to teach you a little bit. In the Bible, anytime you see the words, truly, truly, or you see the words, very truly, I tell you, those are very, very important. So as I read, definitely underline these words as we see them. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, there's your word, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So Jesus' first point to them, he's going to make three points, but the first one is uh, this one, that he and the Father are one. And this is a reference to uh, the Trinity. This is one of the major passages in the Bible where we see the doctrine of the Trinity there. When you think Trinity, just think tri-unity. There's three persons, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they're three distinct persons, different yet one. They are God. And so that's what we believe in Christianity, that there are three persons. We believe in a triune uh, God. And so don't think too deeply about it. It'll make your head hurt a little bit. But it's important to know as we seek to understand who Jesus is and what he's trying and what he's saying here. He's saying that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all together. They're all in the same business. They're all doing the same things. They uh, do not act outside of one another. And so what God the Father decrees the Son does. So the Son does nothing apart from the Father. The Father does nothing apart from the Son. So when we see Jesus' ministry, what we can understand is that we're seeing God the Father's heart on display in front of us. If we want to know who God is, look to Jesus, right? We see that uh, awfully often as we read through the book of John. And Jesus is saying, you think this healing was awesome, and you're mad about this one. You haven't seen anything yet because I'm actually about to raise somebody from the dead, which he's talking about Lazarus, which he will do uh, in a little while. Verse 22, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, there's your word, very truly, underline that, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So secondly, Jesus wants them to know, the Pharisees, that the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the judge, and he is a just judge at that. But his judgments and God's judgments are synonymous. They're the same. So what the Son thinks is what the Father thinks. What the Father thinks is what the Son thinks. Why is this a big deal? Well, because they're not agreeing with the Son, but they're saying they're agreeing with the Father, and he's showing them that that's not 
the case. Again, if you want to see the Father's heart, we look at Christ. His view of right and wrong is God's view of right and wrong. What Jesus says about you is what God thinks about you. And in the case of the Pharisees, that is not good. And here's the judgment. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. So Jesus is dividing people into two very simple categories here. He's saying there are those who are under God's judgment uh, and those who stand condemned before God in their sin. And then there are those who are under God's grace, those who have believed in Jesus and because of their belief have been granted uh, eternal life, life forever, which is an incredible, incredible promise that we find in Scripture. And there's one thing that differentiates these two people, and that difference is belief in Jesus. What they say about Jesus is what differentiates life and death, eternal death, eternal life. It's important for us to understand that. You have to deal with Jesus. What you believe about Jesus is very, 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 very important. Verse 25, very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come. There's your word, very truly. Now he's making another point. I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. Again, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but uh, seek to please the one who sent me. So thirdly, Jesus wants them to know that a time is coming and is now here, has now come, when they will stand before this judgment. Think about it. They are literally hearing the voice of the Son of Man. They're hearing the, verse of Jesus, the voice of Jesus, and they're rejecting it. And we may not like to think about Jesus this way, but he is an incredibly polarizing person. Right? He is the just judge. He is, it's important that we understand he is light. Light exposes darkness. When we step into the light, we see our darkness. And, and John's already told us, some of us, we, we don't like, no, nobody likes being exposed, right, in our sin and in our darkness. But Jesus is a just judge, and he will show no partiality uh, no matter who you are or who uh, you think you are. When we look at him and we hear his voice, it exposes darkness in us, and that's what's happening here with the Pharisees. Verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. He's talking about John the Baptist there. 34, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. 35, John the Baptist was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light, I have testimony weightier than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me 
has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, Jesus, to have life. And so we see here, Jesus, what he's doing is he's basically introducing four witnesses to testify that he is God. And he's, he's using testimony that the Pharisees would have known, basically leaving these religious leaders with no excuse for rejecting him. He uses John the Baptist. They would have known about John the Baptist. The Old Testament predicted John the Baptist. They would have seen John the Baptist's ministry uh, earlier in the book of John. He also says the works of Jesus in verse 36. The miracles and the signs even testify that Jesus is God and he has authority over uh, sickness and he has authority over all things. God the Father, he says, has even testified. And then he says the words of Scripture, the whole Bible testifies to the fact that Jesus is God. John the Baptist, as we've already seen, came as a front runner. Uh, and to prepare the way for the Messiah. This was a prophecy in the Old Testament. They should have recognized that. Uh, also, the signs and wonders were signs that Jesus was, uh, was divine, that he was the Son of God. He's already turned water to wine, which is his first miracle, and then he healed two guys. And so we're beginning to see Jesus uh, use signs and wonders to testify that he is uh, God. Then we see God the Father uh, himself uh, in his voice at Jesus' baptism previously, where Jesus is baptized, and the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. And what greater witness could you, you ask than the voice of God coming down on Jesus' baptism? But then lastly, he says, And if you don't believe all them, the whole Word of God, like the Word of God, the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, in which you guys know very well, also testify about Jesus as the Messiah over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that clarify who Jesus would be and how he would come in the New Testament. It says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5 2. The Messiah would be preceded by a messenger in Isaiah chapter 40. The Messiah would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7 14. That's just three of them. I could do 300 over and over. So they, these people would have known the Bible. And so there's no excuse for them to miss out on the fact that this Jesus is. Is God. Verse 39. Again, he says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, and these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. Can you just imagine this? You're with them, Jesus is walked, and he says this I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Could you think of anything more piercing than the Son of God looking at you and saying that? Verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, then you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. And if you believed Moses, then you would also believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? 
So again, Jesus ends this conversation, and this is all we get of it, coming right at them. He gets personal. He says, I know you, and you refuse to come to me. You do not accept me. The love of God is not in your hearts. You care more about the glory of each other than you do about God's glory. And then he uses Moses, who is pretty much the nail on the coffin. That would have been who they looked to because God gave the law to Moses. They loved the law. And he says, even your father Moses that I gave the law to, even he testifies about me. And you have missed it. And We're on the same page, but you are off. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, if you're interested, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, a great prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. That's key. Listen to what he says because that's exactly what they are not doing. And Jesus is saying along with the whole Old Testament that I am this great prophet. So listen to me. Believe me over and over and over. They're going to reject him. They're going to persecute him. And eventually, because of his claims, they will crucify him. And we read this passage. That's the end of our, our passage today. Um, and so as you think about this passage and you just read through it, there should be one thing. I, I know for me, as I was wrestling with it all week, the one thing that just jumps off the page at you is how can you be face to face with Jesus and miss him? Like, I mean, you're seeing him. Like, can you imagine? Like, that's the hardest thing about faith for us today is we can't see Jesus, right? Blessed are those who have faith that, that can't see, right? We, we have faith in what we cannot see, which is Christ and his word, and we know he's real because of that. But these people are face-to-face with Jesus in the flesh, and they miss it. They miss it. And listen, it can be pretty easy to look down on them because of that. But I want to encourage you this morning, if, if, if we were honest, it wouldn't have been as easy as we thought it would be. Right? I mean, there would have been miracles. There would have been things going on. But we would have most likely been in the same boat as them. I want you to imagine and put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Flash out of 2023 and flash back uh, to when Jesus walked the face of the earth and you're here. And you're seeing a carpenter from Nazareth, a man who's claiming to be equal with God. This is a man just like you and just like me. And he's claiming that he deserves honor and worship the same way God does. This is a man uh, who's claiming that he has authority over you. He has authority to condemn you eternally or to give you life eternally. And these are some pretty outlandish claims if you think about it. Like if you met a person and they set you down at Starbucks and began to explain, hey, I'm God uh, and you're not. And uh, let's get this clear. Uh, I have authority over you. And... uh, I'm not your daddy, but I actually am your daddy. Um, And I can give you life or I can condemn you for eternity. Like we look, we bounce out of the scripture and we're kind of like, yeah, what a bunch of idiots. They don't believe. But if you put yourself in the story, it can actually make sense of why they wouldn't. Now, don't get me wrong. They are without excuse. And Jesus will leave them. And you can tell from his language, we are all without excuse to reject God. God has clearly revealed himself through his word and is clearly revealing himself to them. But I want to be careful, and I want you to see today that this is what religion does. Religion can and will blind all of us if we are not careful. And that's exactly what has happened with these Pharisees. And quite honestly, we live in a culture where a lot of people have missed the point of Christianity. 
many times because they're playing these religious games. Christianity is more of a religion to them than it is a lifestyle. They make Christianity about everything but Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't the focus. Uh, He's just a means to the end in a lot of our culture today. You know, people uh, say they get saved, but the main reason they get saved is because they don't want to go to hell. Okay, well, if you back off of that, that's a great benefit of salvation, but it's not the primary reason that we need to be saved. We need to be saved to be reconciled to God who created us for him and created, we're created by him for him, right? And so a lot of times we say we don't, nobody wants to go to hell and burn forever, so I want to be saved, right? And in that point, what we're doing is using Christ as a means to our end. And I want to show you a couple more examples. Also, if I go to church, then God's going to bless me. So a lot of people say, well, I'm going to go into church today, and man, my week's going to be a whole much better because God's going to bless me because, man, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, right? And in a, in a way, maybe, but at the end of the day, Jesus is not a means to you having a better week, right? Jesus is God, or maybe I've even heard over and over again, man, if I'm a Christian, then uh, my image is going to look better And if I go to church and label myself a Christian, then maybe I'll get this job or maybe this girl will date me or this guy, whatever it is, will marry me, whatever it is. But in that case, do you see what's happening? Like we're basically taking Christianity, which is about Jesus, and we're saying, no, Jesus is a means to make it about me. And that's a big deal. And nowhere in the Bible is that the case. And we have to understand that we live in a culture that loves to do that. The point of Christianity is Jesus. It's about loving him, becoming like him, being satisfied by him and in him, seeking to grow in our relationship with him, living on mission for him. It's about aligning our lives to him, not aligning him to our lives. And today, this is what I want to talk to you about. I want to look at uh, four ways, religious ways, that can cause us to miss Jesus. Four ways that can cause us to miss Jesus so that we don't fall into the same trap that some of these men and women were falling into. And I want you to notice, and and the overarching theme of all of these religious ways is this point. They hindered these people from coming to Jesus. Like That's the goal. It's you refuse to come to me that you may find life, right? That's what Jesus wants is that you come to him and that you find life. But what religion does is take the focus off of Christ and puts it on you, right? And so we we don't come to Jesus because we don't think we need Jesus because we're too busy at our religious things to even need him. So this is what's happening in this passage. So number one, the first religious thing or way that can cause us to miss Jesus. Number one, reading the Bible for intellect and not transformation. All right, let me ask you a question. Why do you study the Bible? Why do you study the Bible? Verse 39 and 40, listen to what Jesus tells them. You study the scriptures diligently. That means, that means aggressively. That means like with all of their heart, they do it a lot. It is something they're devoted to diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. So they're looking to the scriptures to give them eternal life. Jesus says, they're not going to do that. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, Christ. But yet you refuse to come to me that you may find life. Right? So what we need to understand 
is that there is a way to read Scripture and look for life in the Scripture instead of seeing the God of the Scripture and seeing the Christ of the Scripture and finding life in Him. That's what we got to see. There's a difference in those two things, and let's talk about it a little bit. So again, what is your goal when you study God's Word? Is it to gain intellectual knowledge? Is it to study for a class? Is it to study for a connect group? Is it to study for other things? Not bad that we want to learn more about God. That's a a great thing. But it should be to know Christ. That's our primary goal, to, to know Jesus. What is this teaching me about God? What is this teaching me about Christ? Is it to meet with Christ or check off a box? Like, am I just saying, Billy told me I need to read the Bible, boom, here, let's read the Bible, bam, got it out of the way, boom, good day, awesome, let's do it, right? Or do you understand that when you open God's Word and the Spirit of God is working in you, that you're meeting with God, like you're the God of the universe, you're meeting with Him, and He is revealing Himself to you and wants to walk with you and transform your life. Because you see, the Pharisees loved Bible study. They loved it. I mean, they've been through every Beth Moore they got. Every one of them. Charter members. They studied the Bible every day. They went to seminary. They knew their Bibles. They memorized the entire law. They were, and they were confident about it. They were puffed up about it. But there was only one problem. They had missed Jesus. They missed the Christ that the Bible was testifying to. And they were studying the Bible for all the wrong reasons. They were looking to the law to save them. They were looking to religious works to save them. They thought eternal life was found through Bible knowledge. But Jesus tells us clearly and will in John 17, verse 3, he says, Now this is eternal life. What, Christ? Thank you for telling us. That they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the primary purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to us. And God has chosen to reveal Himself through His Word. And if we want to know Him, then we must do that through studying His Word correctly. If we want to experience eternal life, then we do that through knowing Him through His Word. You see, this is why we should love the Bible so much. There's people, thousands, millions, billions of people right now in the world that have don't have the Bible in their language. That's why we're so passionate about trying to get it to them. They don't know God. They can't know God. But we have thousands of Bibles, many in our home. And it's such a gift from God to us. Translations, many translations. Can't understand this one, you can understand this one, right? It's just it's just incredible. You must love the Word of God. Knowing God's written Word is absolutely essential. And if our knowledge of it doesn't lead us to Jesus, then we've completely missed the point of it. So again, why do you study the Bible? Ask yourself that question. Why do you study the Bible? What characterizes your time with God? Is it more about intellect or is it more about transformation. You see, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Word of God transforms our mind, and as we transform our mind through knowing Christ, it transforms our life. This is what the Word of God does. Maybe a little better question, do you study the Bible? Like, are you devoted to God's Word? I mean, the early believers, that was the first thing that was produced after Pentecost was, man, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Are you devoted to God's word? And listen, this is what we're all about as a church. We want to help you. Like if you, you're not a part of the 412 reading plan, which is our church-wide reading plan that we literally do every day of the week. You can download our app. As soon as you download Connection Church Friday, a bottom left-hand corner, you'll see 412. Click on it, and every day of the week we have a scripture, a chapter of the Bible that we're reading together, and we give you a devotion that kind of walks you through what it's saying and questions to ask yourself. I mean, we're trying to help. We want to help you learn to read God's Word and see Christ in it. This is what connect groups are all about. Listen, nobody's a genius when it comes to the Word of God. All of us, listen, there's things I read. I'm supposed to be a professional Christian. I'm a preacher, right? Like I read things, and I'm like, I have no idea what it's talking about. You know, because I wasn't, I wasn't in the context, right? So I have to figure out, all right, who can get me into the context where I can understand the Word, right? Well, that's what connect groups are all about. We're studying God's Word together, and we're, we're looking at what God's doing. And so hopefully in your group, there's somebody in there that's studying just like you, and y'all can have a conversation that'll be fruitful about those things. It's why I preach these sermons the way I do. Listen, I preach for 50 minutes. 50 minutes. That's a long time. Why do I preach so long? Well, because the whole first half of it, I'm walking you through the chapter and hopefully helping you learn how to read God's Word. Because I don't want any person at our church to only be able to read the Word of God if I'm reading it with them. Because what that produces are children. But God has asked us to grow up to maturity, right? I want to teach you how to fish so that you can live for a lifetime, not give you a fish every week and starve you the rest of the week. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to help you. I want you to know how to read God's word and, and understand how to read it. Maybe even a better question is this. Do you study it with the right motivation? Like there are wrong motivations for studying God's word. If you're reading God's word to try to make God happy with you, like you're missing the whole point. God's happy with you because of Christ and what he's done, right? That's our justification. If you're reading the Bible to impress other people, to try to learn or try to fit in or, or do that, you're reading it kind of for the wrong motivation. If you're reading it to check that box to be a good Christian, that's the wrong motivation. There are some correct motives that we read the Bible with. One, we want to meet with Christ. We want to worship God, and worshiping God is about seeing him. And then responding to what we see in God's word through him. We read the Bible to know God, to gain a better understanding of him and who he is and his plan for our lives. And this should be a spiritual discipline that we develop as a Christian. Right? And it's a discipline can kind of bring a bad connotation, but think about it. What is the root word of a disciple? Discipline, right? So we discipline ourselves to be in God's word with the right motivation so that God can transform our hearts. And why do we discipline ourselves? Well, Paul tells Timothy to discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, right? So we're trying to become like Christ. How do we become like Christ? We see him. And when we see him and we are exposed in our own sin and things in our life that don't look like him, we repent and we turn back to him. We say, God, I want to be, make me more like you. I want to be like you so that you can use me. So ultimately, our study of Scripture should lead us straight to the feet of Christ. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. It says, come to me. This is Jesus talking. All you who are weary and burdened. What type of people need God's word? Weary and burdened, all people. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. For you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. When the Bible is rightly studied, this is what it will do. It will reveal God to us. It will reveal our sin. And it will show us our need for Christ. And then Christ will invite us into his grace, to rest in his grace. Praise God. What an incredible gift we have in the word of God. Second, the second religious way we, we can miss Jesus is this. Doing the things of God without the love of God at work within us. Did you notice what Jesus told them? I, I slowed down on this. Jesus looks at them in verse 42 and says, I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your heart. Imagine how piercing that statement would have been for them as Pharisees. They would have seen themselves as mature. They thought they loved God. They claimed that they loved God. They boasted about how much they loved God, and yet Jesus saw right through their facade and said, the love of God is not in you. Would have hammered them. It's tough. And it should cause us to ask the same question. This is what the Bible does, is force us to ask questions about ourselves. Is the love of God in me? Is the love of God in you? Because if the love of God is not at work in us, then sin is at work in us. There's only two things that can be at work in our life. One is God, which will be conforming us to be more and more like Christ, or sin, which is going to be selfishness, which is going to be leading you to do what you want to do and, and saying, God, I don't want to follow you. I don't want to know you. I don't want to walk with you. I don't want to put my life under your authority. I want to do what I want to do. This is the original sin from the Garden of Eden. It's what Adam and Eve decided they wanted to do. The first thing they did was go cover themselves with fig leaves trying to hide from God, which is what religion does in a lot of ways. Is the love of God in me? You see, there's a type of Christian that goes to church every Sunday that claims Jesus, that knows their Bible, that knows the worship songs that we sing, that speaks like a Christian, and yet their heart is far from God problem with that is, is that you're missing the point. And Jesus loves you so much, just like he loved these Pharisees, that he comes to you just like he does these Pharisees through the Spirit. And he says, this is you. And he convicts you. And when he does, you have to respond. Don't fall into the trap that the Pharisees did. And this is not a one-time-in-the-Scripture problem. We see this throughout the Bible. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says to a group of people, he says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain because their teachings are merely human rules. And then Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1.6, 116, and he says, listen, Titus, they claim to know God, but their actions deny him. They are detestable, they are disobedient, and they are unfit for anything good. So you see, this, this is a problem throughout Scripture. It's not just in our day where people come to church and dress up and look great and then walk out and continue to live the way they were living. But according to Jesus, this is this is always been. This is always a part. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. This is what Pharisees were doing then. This is what people were doing later on in, in the Bible with, with Titus on the island of Crete. And according to Jesus, one of the best ways to recognize this in ourselves is by looking at the way we love other people. Like This is the most profound thing about this whole story. 
is you got this man who's a paralytic. He's been paralyzed for 38 years of his life. God heals him. You don't even have to be a Christian to be excited for that. Like, you know what I mean? All you got to do is just be a normal, like, decent human being to say, praise God, like, think, I don't know what happened to you, I don't care, I don't believe in God, but man, you can walk again, that's awesome. And all these Pharisees want to do is say, hey, buddy, I know it's been 38 years, I know you're super excited, I know you're ready to walk for the first time and tell everybody you know, but I need you to sit back down on your mat because it's the Sabbath. Like, I mean, they're just thinking, it, it, literally, the, the, the picture that comes into my mind is, you know, when I, I first started going to church, there was this, I didn't know it, you know, but there was this assigned seating in churches, but it was unspoken, like nobody knew about it. And, uh, you know, you'd sit in a seat and, like, people would kind of come, like, hover over you, and it's like, all right, why is this old lady, like, hovering over me? And, uh, you know, and then she would, at some point, uh, you know, like, sit down awkwardly, like, right beside me, and then her whole family would start showing up, and they would all... Well, apparently, I didn't know I was in her seat, right? Like, this is where she had sat for 38 years. I just came in the church, right? And so, but for some reason, she was more excited about getting her seat than she was about somebody coming to faith in Christ. And like, we're missing the point. Like, this is what religious people do is they make it about everything but what Christ is about, which is seeking and saving lost people. And if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of everything. And Jesus says love should be the most defining fruit of a true disciple of Christ. I want you to write this down. When the love of God is at work in us, the love of God will be on display through us. When God's love is at work in us, his love will be on display through us. John 13, 35, Jesus says it this way, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. First John, John, the same author, would go and later on in his, in his book in Ephesus, he says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in and through us. You see, when we experience this gospel, when we experience the love of God that we didn't deserve, when Christ says, I see Billy and he's rebelling against me and he loves it, he loves his sin, but I love him so much that I'm going to send Christ to die for him, to take the punishment that he deserves for how he's living. And when we come to grips with that, it does something in our hearts. And what happens is the same love that God has shown us, we begin to show to other people. When we experience, that's called the gospel. When we experience the gospel, the good news of Christ and what he's done, we become like that gospel. We become generous. We become loving people that want to take the same good news to other people. And the closer we get to Christ, the more like him we become. You know, know the sign of maturity as a Christian is, do you love people like Christ? That's the primary sign. 
And Jesus is the most loving person ever walked the face of the earth. And as we get closer to him, we become more like him. The love of God should be the most defining characteristic about us if the love of God is at work in us. So here's my question. Does the love of God characterize your life? Like, Is your life characterized by the unconditional love of God? Has God captured your heart so much that you begin to treat people and love people the same way he does? Is this love of God at work in you? That's what Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees. And he's saying, hey, you may say it, but your actions aren't showing it right now. Do our actions show that the love of God is at work in us? That's the second. The third one, third religious way that we can miss Jesus is living for the glory of others and not the glory of God. These guys, they cared more about what people thought about them in the Jewish temple than they did about the opinion of God, ultimately. And anytime we give ourselves over to this, where we care more about what others think of us and their opinions than we do the opinion of God, it really is a miserable place to be. And it's not just them that do it. We do it all the time, right? I'm not preaching at you. I'm with you in this. There's many times where I allow the opinion of others to affect me, and God brings me back to the opinion of him is what matters, and we must fight this battle. But let me just give you a few reasons why this is an absolute miserable place to be when the glory, you're looking for glory from others rather than glory from God. The first is this, because people's opinions constantly change. We live in a world where people's opinion of us changes. And sometimes their opinion changes not even based off of what we're doing, but based off of who they are and what they are going through. And so essentially when we give ourselves over to, to chasing the opinions and the glory of others, we're essentially chasing after something that we will never be able to attain for very long. The image in your mind should be a hamster in a cage on a wheel. And you're just running and running and running and running and running. And at some point you realize, I'm not going anywhere. This ain't working. I'm tired. I ain't got no food. And I'm just running on this wheel. They won't ever figure it out, but we can figure that out, right? And we're not going to do it for very long. It's the same exact thing. The world's opinion of us largely is based on performance, right? If I do this well, then people will love me. If I mess this up, then people will not love me. If I meet this person's standard, then they will approve of me. If I don't meet this person's standards, then they will reject me. And here's the reality. It's a changing standard every day because the standard of worldly success is dependent, dependent on the opinions of man. If we live for the approval of man, we will die by the rejection of man. And the good news of the gospel is this, that in Christ, God approves of us for eternity. Like when we get Christ, God approves of us. We don't have to look for glory from others. We're already glorified in him. He, he loves us. His, his approval is now set on us, not because of anything we've done or anything we didn't do, but because of Christ and what Christ has done. And God's opinion never, ever, ever changes. It's not like the wind. It's secure, and we can find it through his word. Secondly, it's miserable, miserable because it leads to a life of comparison. It really does lead to a life of comparison. When we're trying to win the opinion or the approval of others, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Basically, this is what we adopt. I don't have to be the best. 
I just got to be better than them. And that's how we live our life. And social media just kind of pours gasoline all over that because it shows you everything good about everybody's life. And you ain't got to be the best. You just got to be better than them because that's the standard that you are looking for. So, of course, this leads to some awful things in our life. We can't truly love others because we're in constant competition with others. We, can't, we will seek to tear others down because it makes ourselves look better. We will lack authenticity because we have to constantly put on the face that we're trying to be for whoever's approval that we're looking for. It literally hinders us from living an authentic, real lifestyle, from being secure in Christ. And it's really miserable. I've heard it said this way, comparison is the enemy of contentment. The good news of the gospel, though, is that in Christ, we find peace and we find contentment. And it's no longer found looking horizontally to the opinions of others, but now it's found looking vertically to God. No more comparison. No more tearing down others to make yourself look better. No more fake, because Christ fully knows you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he fully loves you. And he wants to do a work in your life. And there's no peace, and there's no contentment like peace when it comes from God, like contentment when it comes from God. And then thirdly, and most importantly, it will not satisfy us. I don't know if you figured this out, but even though glory from others feels good, it overpromises and under delivers. It's fleeting because it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And it will never satisfy that place in your hearts that God has created to only be satisfied in him. You see, all of us were created by God for God. And that means all of us have a hole in our heart, the deepest part of who we are. And it can only be satisfied by the God that created us. And we spend, many of us spend our entire life trying to fit something in that hole that was never meant to fit in there. And because it, it, it destroys our life in a lot of ways. And here's Christ in front of these guys saying, listen, why are you worried about the, other, the glory of others? Like the person you're looking for is, is, is here. He's right in front of you. It's Christ. And instead of running away from the Pharisees, and saying, man, they're not going to get it anyway. What does Jesus do? He stops his day and he spends time talking to them and sharing with them what they are missing. So here's the question. Where are you seeking glory from? Whose glory are you living for? Are you living for God, his opinion? Is that the loudest voice in your life? Or are there other voices just chirping all around you? and You're just like a puppet. Man, I got to do what they want me to do. I got to do what they want me to do. That's miserable. Live for the voice, the one voice, the audience of one. And then lastly, the fourth religious way that we can miss Jesus based on this passage is that we believe that we have something that we really do not. You see, here's the crazy thing about the Pharisees. They thought they were right in what they were doing. They were deceived. They literally thought, that they had it and Jesus had missed it. They were right and Jesus was wrong. And the best term to explain that is self-righteousness. They were self-righteous. They thought that they were right. Rightness came from within 
themselves. They were blinded by this. They were blinded by their self-righteousness. They were not correctable. They weren't teachable. And this is a terrible place to live in as well. And I believe it's one of the most common problems in our lives, but also one of the greatest weapons of Satan in our lives. And you say, Billy, what do do we do about it? Well, a couple things. One, we have to be willing to come to the end of ourselves every day. Like not once, but every day we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to open this word and say, God, you're God and I'm not. And that means you are right. And I may be right about a few things, but I'm wrong about a lot of things too. And then what we do is secondly, we ask God to posture our lives in humility in our hearts. We pray and say, God, humble me. God, I don't want to act like I'm God. I want to be a teachable spirit. Like, God, help me. Because listen, for if any of us are honest in this room, it feels good to be right. And there's a, there's a drift in Christianity as we grow in our faith to assume that we are right about everything. But the only problem with that is that the teaching of sanctification in the Bible says that we're all a work in progress until Christ comes back. So that means Christ will be confronting wrongness in our life until the end of our life. And part of our maturity and growth, really all of it, is beginning to look to God in this way to say, Lord, I know you love me. Like a loving father, would you show me areas of my life? Would you teach me? Would you reveal areas of my life that need to be corrected? And then lastly, we have to believe that God wants to speak to us. And not just the person next to us. You know what I'm saying? So many of us, when we listen to a sermon, or when we read the Bible, our first thought is about others. And there's nothing wrong with that in a lot of ways. But before God wants to speak to the person next to you, he wants to speak to you. Because you're a work in progress just like the person next to you. You may be at different points in your life. And God may be doing something different, and the sin you struggle with may be different than this person. But at the end of the day, you're still a work in progress, all of us. And so don't fall into this trap that the Pharisees fell into where they assumed that they were right. They assumed that they had something that they never, ever had. And so today as we close, there's one commonality about all of these barriers, religious barriers in our lives. And this is it. All of them keep us from coming to Christ. And whether we're a lost person in the room and we don't have a relationship with God or whether we're a Christian that's been saved for many, many years. The point of the Christian life is to come to Jesus. To come to him when we're saved and to come to him until he comes back to get us. Because the issues that we're facing are not meant to be solved on our own. The sin in us is too great for us to fix ourselves.
but God says he's ready to fix it, and he will fix it, but you got to come to him. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Listen, I, I don't know where you're at this morning. I, I don't know if you're at a good spot with God. I don't know if you're in here and you're like, Billy, I don't even have a relationship with God. But here's what I know. God's here. He speaks through his word. And I know he's moving on the hearts of people in this room, and I want to give you the opportunity to respond because that's what we do. That's what the Pharisees don't do is they hear it and it goes in one ear and out the other. But for us, if our heart is postured towards Christ, then we've got to see him for who he is. And when we see him for who he is, it begins to shine light in our lives that exposes darkness. So what is that in your life this morning? If you're in this room and you say, Billy, I want a relationship with God. I've always thought it was about doing things. I'm like this Pharisee that's trying to do these rules and, and I can't mad up and I don't ever know if God loves me or not. Well, today's the day for salvation because you need to understand the greatest news in the history of the world is that Christ performed for you and he died on a cross for you. And he did that so that you could put your faith in him so that you could be made right with God through him, not through your religious performance. So if you're in the room today and you say, Billy, that's me. Today, I want to trust in Christ. I believe he's done everything necessary to save me, and I want to surrender my life to him. If that's you, will you lift your hand right where you're at and say, Billy, that's me. I ask you to be bold. Anybody in the room, you say, Billy, that's me. Give me a second. So God, here's my prayer. Lord, would you create in us a humble, teachable spirit. God, would we be a church that your love is working in. And God, because it's working in us, it's being demonstrated through us into this community and to the ends of the earth. So God, would you teach us to be a people that responds to you when you speak. God, that don't refuse to come to Jesus no matter what it is. And Lord, would you do what only you can do in us? And that's transform our lives to look more and more like you. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.